Hey, everybody. My name is David G, and I am an alcoholic and an addict, and I'm very grateful for a recovery date in Alcoholics Anonymous of October 8th, 1994, and I'm very grateful for an emotional recovery date of October 1st, 2019. A lot of years in between there. Uh, the story speaks for itself. If you ever hear it, I don't need to go into it tonight, but I'm truly, truly grateful to be here with all of you for sure. So grateful to Miss Ashley and Mr. Dennis for their service. I mean, I can't say this enough. I, I get to come out here and speak every week, share experience, strength, and hope. But I promise you all that's done in the background is what makes this possible. So I want to thank the both of you again from the bottom of my heart for what you do to make this happen every week. Dennis taking care of the recording, Ashley downloading it, putting it on YouTube. It's just on and on and on. I want to give a big shout out to my little buddy there, Miss Ashley, she celebrated a year of sobriety just here not too long ago. That's a huge, huge milestone, definitely in anybody's life, but especially hers. I've heard her story. So congratulations, my friend. We've been studying resentment. Man, the number one offender. I thought lust was. I thought booze was. I thought drugs was. I thought others was. Resentment. Common manifestation of self, it said. That's what had defeated us. How could I have been so blind, as my friend Michael said just a while ago? How could I have not seen that for all those years? Studying and reading and delivering the message and missed it. Completely missed it. Trapped by self and didn't even realize it. Well, we've studied through the first three steps. We've seen that we're powerless for two reasons in step one. Not one. We're powerless because once we put any of it into our body, we can't stop. Once we take it out, our mind won't let us stay stopped. It always brings us right back. Our life's unmanageable because of a gaping hole that we have within that nothing can fill. We've tried everything, sex, drugs, alcohol, toys, more money, better jobs, more women. Never worked. We found ourselves completely hopeless and abandoned ourselves to God as we understood at that time. We came in. We took the second step as it was laid out in the big book. We read through, we begin to identify the self, the thoughts, the actions, the concepts, the beliefs, the prejudice, over and over and over, all the way through this. We have continually looked at that over and over. So we've made it to inventory. There was no amen at the end of step three, so we're very much still in prayer, very much. We've seen that we made this list prayerfully. We come up with all these names. Just a list, no columns. Um, my book doesn't say anything about columns. We come up with a list. We set it to the side, and we begin to look at 19 words or less on page 65. If you count the words in the cause, there's 19. Anything under that is less. So in 19 words or less, we wrote down the cause. Now, the ego loves the story. Self has a narrative, and it likes to tell a story all the time. So if I'm not careful here, I'll get caught up in writing a whole story about what they've done to me. That seems to make little difference as we move through this process. I just want to recap on this because it is so important. I've asked my friend Ashley to share an example with you from my own personal inventory. And I want to first take a look at, before we come up to where we're at, the resentment which is on the left side of the page. We talked about doing one name, one page. I had a coworker, and this is why I was upset with him. Remember, 19 words or less. He didn't show me the attention of a loving friend. He's negative, and I don't trust him. 
that's a good reason to be upset with somebody, I'd think. Now, you notice on your example on 65, if you call that a column of my effects, they just kind of put that out there. But we need a deeper look at this. And so last week we showed the seven areas of self, which we're happy to do again or put in the WhatsApp group. But we want to look at self-esteem, and I want to do this in very short sentence form. How does that affect my self-esteem? This is what my mind tells me. Who does he think he is to look at me or treat me that way? Maybe I'm unworthy. Pride, fear of his opinion of me. It'll set the course for how others in the company feel about me. Maybe they do believe the things that he's saying. Ambition. I want slash need others to think well of me, including him, so that this ride will be smooth for me and I'll be okay. Security. How does that affect my security? I need approval and frequent reminders of the good job that I'm doing. Personal relationship. This is demands we put on others. Inwardly, I demand attention. Outwardly, I say nothing. But I talk a lot about him and me in conversation, seeking praise so that I'll be okay. Now, notice how my sex relations was not affected in this particular sense of what situation. I can't say this enough. Not all of these are going to apply. I know a lot of people that tries to write everything about everything here, but if this doesn't apply, it doesn't apply. And I promise you, I had no sex relations with this man. So it did not apply here. See how that was left blank. But it would affect my pocketbook. My job may not last here if he gives a bad report. This was a man that was higher up in the company, and his word was his word. So with that being said, thank you, Miss Ashley. We moved from 65 to 67. We looked seven times on page 66 how anger and resentment was going to kill us. We connected that, looking at the words very closely in the book. When we got to 67, that's where we left off last week. We'll start right back there at the top. It says, though that we did not like their symptoms, that's column two. In a way that these disturbed us, that's column three. They, like us, were sick too. I forgot that part. They, like us. I forget that. Here's my prayer. We ask God. To help us show them same tolerance, pity, and patience, we cheerfully grant us a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. Now, this is every day also, not just when I'm writing inventory. If I'm going throughout my day and somebody upsets me pretty bad, if I can get in the habit of stopping and pausing for just a moment and doing this right here, I promise you, my the result of that is going to be a whole lot different than it's always been. Now, we talked about doing this prayer work is looking at somebody, a loved one maybe, or someone that you were very close to that was in a hospital bed. Maybe you prayed very dearly for that person to live or that person to get better. And the exercise that was shown to me was I was to visualize that, doing this prayer work from my list, each name on that list, taking that person out of the bed, visually putting each name one by one in there and praying for them the same way that I had prayed. Now, I tell you, this is a very powerful, powerful way to do prayer work. And I have to do this prior to going into what most would call the fourth column. My book calls it mistakes. And if I don't do this, then I'm going to still come in with a little bit of the idea that I'm somewhat better now, but you still had a good part in that. You did. Now, my book doesn't say anything about a part. I hear that a lot when I go to meetings, my part, your part, this part, my, my book doesn't say it at all. And that's where we're going to pick up this week. This is what are called the turnarounds, and this is called the actual part of the inventory where we really begin to turn our thinking around 
for the first time in my life, I see who's to blame here. Now, the things that happened to me when I was a little kid and I had no control over, that was not my fault. I was most definitely a victim of that behavior. I was. But for the next 45 years of my life, I was not. And especially after I became an adult. There were many times that I could have walked away from situations and I didn't. So I want to look at the wrongs. The reason that I can't ever get over my fears is because they're not my fears. I can't get over my selfishness because it's not mine. If I do that, I still identify with the self. It is not mine. This is the narrative that is given to me. This is how I see it when they do something to me. And this is how I react without going into prayer. Let's look what the book says. Referring to our list again. Remember the list we wrote in the beginning. No columns, just a list. We're going to refer back to that list. Now, I'm going to look at this from an entirely different angle. Remember the bottom of page 66. We're prepared to look at this from an entirely different angle. It's almost like being in court. The DAA is against me. Trust me, I know about this. i got personal experience. I hated that man for what he done to me. Send me to jail. But if I had walked to the other side of the room and gotten his shoes and looked back at what I would have done, I would have done the same thing. I would have had to. That would have been my job. But I didn't see it that way. I see it that way today. So what happened? My outlook changed. Here's how. Putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done. That's column two. We resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Not our part. Not their part. Our own mistakes. When I ask my friend Ashley to put a template up here, as I read through this, I want to take a close look at this because this is so important. Now, this comes from my part of the inventory as well. The turnarounds on the back of the page. Remember, we said one name, one page. The back of the page stays blank. This is why, because this is where the turnarounds go. Selfish. I'm going to put that on the left. Prayerfully, I'm going to ask God to show me the truth. Here's what I came up with with that same old boy that was the co-worker. I am convinced that if he did as I wished, all would be well. I believe that he's the problem. Remember, I always thought alcohol was the problem, drugs was the problem, sex and lust was the problem. They are the problem. That's not the problem. Self is the problem. I believe that he is the problem. So my thoughts and actions about him are all rooted in self. I've seen this whenever I prayerfully ask God to show me in the turnaround. Look at how I was dishonest. Look at it in our book on 67. Where have we been selfish, dishonest? Here's the next one. I believe the lie that he and everyone else is what is wrong with me at any given time. I've always believed that all my life. If you would straighten up, if they'd straighten up, if they, you know, if my stepdad hadn't have done those things to me, I'd have never turned out the way I did. So I always believe that everyone else, and that's what's wrong with me at any given time. It manifests in me talking about others, and it creates a lot of gossip. Self-seeking. I want to prayerfully ask God, how have I been self-seeking? Look at what it says. Self had sought approval from others to support his agenda and not see the co-worker, co-workers or others as they really are. I can't see them that way. Why? Because I'm spiritually asleep. I'm not spiritually awake. We're headed for a spiritual awakening. Frightened. Self convinced me. That he would make trouble for me at work because he was connected with people higher up in the company and that he wouldn't be a friend anymore to me. Fear drove all of this. But there's one more thing here that I never hear too many people talk about in, the, in any meeting. 
or even in a lot of the big book step studies. There's one more question here, and it's where was I to blame? And if you'll read that on page 67 in the middle paragraph, referring to our list again, putting out the, our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely look for our mistakes where we've been selfish, self-seeking, and frightened. Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved in tolerance. That's column one. Last question right here. Where was I to blame? Don't miss that question in turnarounds. Please don't miss that question because if you do, as so many do, I will never see where I was to blame. Here's how I was to blame in this particular situation. I took actions based on self or based on a belief, based on self, and therefore I acted on it, believing he was the problem when it was really self the entire time. I couldn't see that man as he was. He had no control over me. There was nothing he could do to me to hurt me. I see that now, but I didn't see that then. All I could see is what he had done to me. When I prayerfully take a look at this, this is a very, very powerful way to look. Now, based on what was in column two and what was on that fifth question right there, you will begin to see that they light up. Self convinced me that he would make trouble for me. I took action based on that thought, and I resented that man from then on. Would you put back up column two, please, keeping that in mind right there, just for one second. Column two, he didn't show the, to me the attention of a loving friend. He's negative, and I don't trust him. Now, when I get back over there and I look where I was to blame, that's what self had convinced me of. Here, I think it's me doing it. I get over there, I really begin to see the truth. This is a very powerful way to do inventory. Thank you, Ashley. So when we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. My sponsor told me to get a black pen and a white piece of paper, David, because we're sticking to the book. And we did. We admitted our wrongs, not theirs, ours, honestly. And we were willing to set these matters straight. That's some eighth step work that we will be looking at. So if we follow the instructions pretty carefully by now, resentments have really begun to fall away from us. We begin to have a different view. Our eyes are starting to open in a new way. We're starting to take action based on the decision in, in step three and on the belief that we came to in step two. This is a very powerful way to do inventory. That is called step four, part one, resentment. Now we're going to take a look at step four, part two. This is the fear inventory. Notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Browns, Mrs. Jones, and the employer and the wife. Now, if you'll hold that place right there and flip back to page 65 for just a second and take a look at the third column, you're going to see next to self-esteem every time the word fear shows up. It always, always shows up right here. And this is what we're going to look at. So this is what he's saying back on 67 at the bottom of the page when he says, notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Brown, Jones, the employee, and the wife. This short word somehow touches every aspect of our life. It was an evil and a corroding threat. I read about the dogwood soldier. He was a different kind of an Indian. And what he would do is they would put you to sleep. They would cut you open. They would put a poisonous feather inside of you, and they would sew you back with a poisonous thread. And that evil, that would, would corrode and begin to grow in you in a way that if you didn't get that out, 
you would eventually die, but you were going to live in a whole lot of hell before you did. That's how fear does us. It's the same way. And so look what he says. The fabric of our existence was shot through it. What's the fabric of my existence? I don't understand this terminology. What does that mean? To turn back, hold your place and turn back to 65 one more time. We're going to look at the seven areas of self. The book says self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relationships, including sex, security, ambition, and pride. These are the fabric of our existence. And as we've seen through that resentment inventory, our existence was shot through with it. We're burnt up, we're sore, and we're dying from this stuff. And we've got an affliction and an addiction on top of it, and we can't, we can't stop it. It's killing us. And we're so focused on sex and lust and drugs and booze and overeating or whatever it may be, we forget about it. We don't even know about it. And we come in, and we sober up, and we do a little bit better, and we go to meetings, we read the book, we pray, we do all this, we get a little bit better, and then boom, it shows back up and beats us up. Just because I give my will in life to a loving God in step three doesn't mean a lifetime of bad habits are going to go away. I've got to face and identify these things. I've got to face and be rid of. The fabric of our existence, which is the seven areas of self, are shot through with it. It, talking about fear, set in motion trains of circumstances, which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. What does that even mean? Motion trains of circumstances. It's almost like a premeditated, you can hold on to a fear for so long that it becomes a reality in your life. Anybody ever do that? My grand sponsor tells the story of how he was dating a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he became very jealous of this woman, and his mind told him all along, she's going to leave you. You're not good enough for her. You're unworthy. You're no good. She's probably running around on you anyway. Well, he began to stalk her whenever they wasn't dating at night or whatever. She'd get up to go to the restroom. He'd grab her phone out of her purse and begin to look through it. She caught on to what was going on. She had to talk with him. said, look, man, you got to stop this. I mean, this is insane. He agreed to do it, but he never did it. And it kept on and on and on. And one day she said, you know what? I've had enough. I'm leaving. I'm gone. His mind said, see, I told you the whole time she was going to leave you. You're not good enough and you're not worthy. It, talking about fear, set in motion trains of circumstances, which we which brought misfortune, which we felt we didn't deserve. I guarantee he felt he didn't deserve that, but changes the entire storyline here. Did we or he or whoever ourselves not set that ball rolling every time? I'm afraid I'm going to go to jail, but I can't quit breaking the law. You know what happened? I go to jail. My mind tells me, see, you're destined to live in jail the rest of your life. Look what it says. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Why? because it robs my peace of mind it robs my happiness it robs my joy it steals my family it takes everything that i got my self-worth it steals it all it ought to be classed with stealing it definitely seems to cause more trouble here's our directions we reviewed our fears thoroughly we put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them that period that means stop right there I need a list of fears, an entire list of fears. Every fear I've ever had prayerfully come at this. I showed back up with 80 or 90 fears, and I thought, good God, here we go again. All the years that I'd ever written inventory, I saw what I do. One, two, three, four column, all these names, all these fears, all this stuff. I learned something different. These are all surface fears, every one of them. 
Now, in order to get to the root of the fear, we need to know what the root of the fear is. So I'm going to ask my friend Ashley if she would put up there the 12 root fears that are common to every man. So we come back with 70, 80 fears, 100 fears, whatever they are. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to narrow them down to 12. Now, you take each fear, no matter what that is, and it's going to relate to one of these 12. It's unbelievable how this is the root. If I'm swimming in the swamp, I'm really not scared the alligator's going to eat me up. I'm really afraid of death. If I'm flying in an airplane and I'm scared to death it's going to go down, most likely I'm not afraid of flying. I'm afraid of crashing. I'm afraid of death. And I'm not so afraid of crashing as I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me after I die based on what I've learned as a kid growing up. I'm very much afraid of death, and I don't even know it, although I'm putting my life on the line every time I go out there and act out and relapse and drink more and drug more, and I'm putting my life on the line every day. But I'm afraid of death. That doesn't even really make sense, does it? Well, I'm afraid that people are going to leave me. They're going to run off. They're never going to come back. Kind of crazy how I run them all off through my addiction, isn't it? I'm not afraid of that. I'm afraid of abandonment. And see, I don't know that at the time. So all that stuff is the surface. This is the root. So you take the 70, 80, 50, 60, how many ever you come up with, you connect each one back to this, back to this, back to this. Now, we're going to work with these 12. All the rest of them are good to have. Keep it in your pile if you want to. But we're focusing on this right here. Look at the very next sentence in the book. We ask ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? See, it's not fear. It's self-reliance. Look at the small s. That's what failed us. I had all this fear. All it really turned out to be was mental anxiety, and it was reliance upon self. So I'm going to write about these 12. And I'm going to write prayerfully. And what I'm going to begin to see is exactly what it says right there. This is how self-reliance failed me. I'm going to share a little bit from my inventory on just a couple of them, not too many. But there again, we're going to write on these 12. No more. We're not going to write on the 80. We're going to look at the surface. We're going to connect it to the root. We're going to write about the root. Always before I draw columns, I do this, I do that. My book says nothing about that. It says nothing about drawing any columns. So if my friend Ashley would, one more time, please, would you put part of my inventory on top? And I'm just going to share a couple. Here was one of my big fears, being exposed, because that had happened to me. That will happen to a lot of us sex addicts, us drones. Here's how self-reliance failed me. I fear humiliation and that people will look down on me and laugh at me, so I avoid conversations or situations where it may be discussed. Now, look, I'm still writing about my fear. I fear I'll be shamed and I won't be able to go around people without being talked about, judged, etc. Here's what I do. When I take action based on this fear, without God's help, here's what I do. I tell lies about others, and I build myself up. I draw hints to other people that I will physically beat down anyone found guilty of talking like that about me in hopes that they'll go back and report to others the threats, and all of them will avoid shaming me. I try to manage and control and have conversations in my head about it. Look how many times the word I is in that sentence. I fear. 
I avoid. I fear. I drop hints. I will physically beat. I try to manage. I, 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 I. It's very clear, very clear to see how self-reliance failed me because this is what I do whenever I get afraid of being exposed by someone. It's not the fear. It's the self-reliance upon this that brings the fear. Let's look at another example. One more. Abandonment. Big one. Anybody afraid of that? So I'm fear of being left alone. So I draw other people into my life to act out with or to control when depressed. I turn to mood altering chemicals or alcohol to drown away the pain instead of facing and healing from it. Here's what I do based on that fear. I seek out different crowds of people and I try again. Prayerfully, I want to come at this. I want to see what do I do? What did I do? How do I react every time I have one of these 12 root fears? This is the stuff that's going to six and seven, not a word abandonment. God take away abandonment. I need to know the behaviors connected to it because if I don't heal from this right here, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to chase me all the way up the rest of the steps and it's going to steal my experience just like it said at the top of 68. It ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. I get to steps eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. I'm going to be suffering from some of these things right here, and I'm not going to understand why, and I'm going to lose my experience. That's happened to me over and over and over. I want, I need to heal from this here. Thank you, Ashley. So the book says, wasn't it because self-reliance felt it? Self-reliance was as good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence. Now, that's not so bad whenever you're young and you're in your teens and your 20s and your 30s. But as you get older, those fears begin to become more real because we've relied on self all of our life and we don't even know we're doing it. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other when it made us cocky. It was worse. Perhaps there's a better way. I hope so. Don't you? I'm sure of it these days. We think so for we are now. Now being the key word, there's one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. So we're on a different basis. We're on the basis of trusting and relying upon God. How did that happen? Well, I've seen the fear. I've seen how self-reliance is what has defeated me. I'm looking at the common manifestations of self, and I'm seeing how it's defeated me, and I see how I react and behave every time one of them comes up. We trust infinite God rather than finite selves. Look at this. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. I've always been the role assignment. I mean, I assign you this role and that role, and even if I don't tell you that, I know that in my head. And when you don't live up to that role, I become very angry. And then whenever you pull away or you reject or you abandon me or whatever you do, I get very upset. I get very fearful. It's been said many, many times, resentment is fear with a bow tie. And I believe that today, very much so. So we're in the world to assign the role he plays, not the role that I assigned to everyone. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Love heals fear. It has to. There can be no other way. I've already seen an inventory through the prayer work on page 67 I begin to have more love now because I've seen the mistakes that were made. Now I see that it wasn't so much you as it was me and the way I think I'm starting to see the same thing here. We never apologize. This is an instruction. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. 
I used to be ashamed to tell people I was in a 12-step program that I was a sex addict. Oh, my God, don't say nothing like that. There's such a stigma in the United States about this and this, and don't ever say something. I say it every time. I go to a podium today. I'm not ashamed of that. Why? Because God has taken that from me and done a miraculous turn around in my life. It's a miracle. I can laugh at anybody that thinks spirituality is a way of weakness. And for me, spirituality is the 12 steps is outlined in the big book of alcoholics. Anonymous. I don't care who knows it as long as I don't ever forget it all as well. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is a way of weakness. Paradoxically, it's the way of strength. <laughs> what a, what a different outlook on that. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. But if you remember, Bill talks about trust and reliance upon creator of the universe. I go to a circus. There's a man up there on a tight line pushing a wheelbarrow 30 feet in the air. I promise you, I'm not going to worry too much about him falling because I know that he is trained to push that across there and return to the ground safely. I trust that asked me to go up there and get in that wheelbarrow with him. Let's see where that trust goes in. It goes out the window. I'm not going to do that. So it's trust and reliance upon a power greater than self. And I'm still not going to do that, by the way. I, I do have some common sense today. So they trust their God. They never apologize for God. We let him demonstrate through us. Man, what, what a remember in step three? Thy power, thy love, thy way of life. Take away my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. We're coming back to it again right here. They trust their God. They never apologize for God. I never apologize to anybody for this program. I love that. We let him demonstrate what he can do. Remember, God is everything. Our fear is we can't serve both. You got to pick one. And so... We ask him, that's a prayer. Anytime I see those two words, we ask. We ask him to remove our fear. Remember, that's our list of fears of the 12. Ask him to remove that and to direct my attention to what he would have me be, not what he would have me do. For so long, I had that confused. I thought I need to go do something. I don't need to do anything. I need to be willing. I need to stand ready. If I ask him, to remove my fear and direct my attention, then there must be a vision in there somehow, somewhere. And if I'm being still, if I'm being quiet, if I'm being what I should be, I'm going to receive intuitively what that is. If I'm out there trying to do something, I promise you that experience is going to slip away from me. It's not about doing. It's about being. What he would have us to be, look at this wonderful promise at once, not after a while, not after I call my sponsor here in a little bit, not after I go to a few AA meetings, that's what you hear, just, just go to meetings, don't drink, you'll be okay, and that's not what my book says, it says at once, if I do what this has asked me to do, I'm going to commence to outgrow fear, which means start, this refers to my character, what he would have me be, so we're at the end of the fear inventory, and you could probably stand about what's coming up next if you've done this. If you haven't, <laughs> most of us are going to get lost right here. And I can promise you a good number of us that are in this room or on this screen tonight suffer 
from what we're about to take a look at right here. If you're in Alcoholics Anonymous and you've never looked at this as an addiction and you've been having a whole lot of trouble, you might want to take a closer look at this deal. Now, I tell people that tell me all the time, David, I'm not a sex addict. I said, you sure did leave a whole lot of ink on that part of the inventory on the paper. If, if you're not a sex addict, you missed a good chance. And we go back and take a good look at this deal again. And we're not really talking about sex. I wrote a lot of sex inventories before I found out it wasn't about sex. My God, blew my mind whenever I seen this. And I was dying from this at the time. Lust was killing me. It had eaten me up for many years. I'd held so many secrets and hurt so many people. And I was exposed for every bit of this. And in 2018, 2019, this all came out, went all over Alcoholics Anonymous, got back to my wife, destroyed everything that I'd ever cared about. My self-worth, my well-being, every bit of it was gone. I remember laying on my face and crying and begging God, just please. And, and I don't say that lightly about crying because that's a sign of weakness to me. And that's pride and ego. So now about sex. Many of us needed an overhaul in there. We're not talking about a mere tune-up. Many of us, not a few, many of us needed an overhaul in there. But above all, let's try to be sensible on this question. Let's try to look at this with some common sense for a change. It's easy to get way off the track. I promise you it's easy to get way off the track. But through this part of the inventory, we can get back on the track and have a whole lot better life down the rest. Here we find human opinions run into extremes. Sit around in a, in a fellowship meeting and listen to the extremes running through the opinions of people that are in there. I had a uh, sponsor at one time, he, and he just could not understand me. He said, David, I had this trouble early on in recovery. I came in, worked the 12 steps, had a spiritual experience, turned my life around. I've never went back. I know you had a spiritual experience. I watched you in 1994. God, it touched your life in a way that was just unbelievable. How did this come back and get you? You realize what's going to happen to you if you continue this behavior. You have to stop it. You have to. Yes, sir. I'm ready. Let's go. I don't even make it back from East Texas until I've already stopped and had another run at this. So it's easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extreme, absurd extremes, perhaps. Now, one set of voices, we're talking about the voices within our head here, not just a bunch of people out here talking. One set of voices cry that sex is the lust of a lower nature. We've heard about it as far back as I can remember here in Oklahoma. Lust and sex is a dirty, nasty thing. It's there for one reason, and that's to create babies, and that's it, nothing more. It says the base and necessity of procreation. Then we have voices who cry for sex and more sex. And many of us sitting on here in this room tonight who have begun to recover from this deadly, deadly illness after being sober for many, many years can absolutely agree that those voices cry for more and more. They bewail the institution of marriage who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. That's not the truth. We didn't know today itself. Here's how I see it. Sex is the vehicle. Lust is the fuel to the vehicle. Cut off the fuel supply. The vehicle no longer runs. It's about progressive victory over lust every day. Same way as it is with alcohol. Same way as it is with the drug addict. Same way as it is with the food addict. This is just another common manifestation of self. 
this was a mistake. This was a lesson. It's not a life sentence. We don't have to kill ourselves for the rest of our life for something we've done. We are able to take a new course, and here's how we do it. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow a man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. That's same-sex relations. We want to stay out of this controversy. I had a guy one time come to me, and he said, David, I want you to sponsor me. He said, but I have something that I need to tell you. And if you don't want to sponsor me, then I completely understand it. He said, I'm attracted to the same sex. And I said, okay. Now, there was a day that I would have just judged him in every kind of way, but I said, okay. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, have you ever been hurt? He said, yes. I said, have you ever been lonely? He said, yes. I said, have you ever promised your heart to somebody and they take it and rip it out from you? He said, yes. I said, so what you're telling me is you have the same emotion as me. You have the same feelings as me, the same thoughts as me. Your preference is different. That's the only thing. Why would I not work with you? You and me are the same, brother. And I promise you, I would have never said that before the 12 steps. I want to stay out of that controversy. It's none of my damn business. None of it. I don't care. I don't have a judgment here. Look what it says. We don't want to be the arbiter. That's a judge. Person with the power to decide a dispute. We don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conducts. We all have sex problems. I love those that come up and just dog you and judge you. I had that happen to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Still, it was unreal. Look back at some of their inventories. <laughs> yeah, a lot of ink left on this part of it. We all have sex problems. That's a promise. We hardly be human if we didn't. But here's the question. What can I do about it? Do I want to stay sick? Do I want to get better? What do I want to do here? What can I do about it? Well, here's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to review our conduct over the years past. Not our filthy, dirty, sexual secrets and write all this crap down. I've had people have me to do that. And I come away from that inventory feeling worse than I ever would. Had somebody showed me what the big book Alcoholics Anonymous said in it. Damn sure doesn't say nothing about me writing any of that stuff down. It says I'm going to look at my conduct, period. Not all my sexual misbehaviors and all that crap. I don't even make a list of names. They told me, go make the long list of names. Everybody you've ever been with, everybody you ever thought about being with, all of this, and all this, and all this. Where do we see that right here? Show me where that's at, and I promise you, I'll shut up and never say it again. But until then... My book says this, we review our conduct, not the people, not a list, not none of that crap. We review our conduct over the years past. Here's my conduct. Where had I been selfish? I'm going to write about where I'd been selfish. Not everybody I've been selfish with. From the time that I began this type of behavior to the time it ended, what did self look like there? Where was I selfish? It doesn't say to write each name and write beside it who was selfish. It says selfish. I'm going to ask my friend. Ashley, to put just a little bit of my inventory up here as an example, it's not that I don't think people that can't get this or read this or whatever, but I just want to show you a little bit of mine. Where have I been selfish? Well, here's how. Prayerfully, this is what come up. Not knowing about the self, the narrative convinced me that I wanted to spend more time acting out and drinking and drugging than spending with my own family and friends. It convinced me of that. Notice how I didn't write down David or I. I wrote self convinced me that people were objects and that people owed me. I wanted something for nothing. I would brag about my acting out and become very depressed and continue to act out with still more people 
to try to gratify self. Self convinced me it was notches on the belt and I wasn't hurting anyone. I've made a lot of empty promises to get my way. I don't know what will come to you in your prayer life as you begin to write about your selfishness. I don't see nothing about the names there. I don't see nothing about all of that crap. I see none of that. My book says we're going to look at our conduct and my conduct is selfish. And here's what I do when I'm selfish. And this is putting it very mildly. There's a whole lot of things that I can fill this page up with. That's just an example. Dishonest. Where have I been dishonest? Not who have I been dishonest with. When caught, many lies were told and self-convinced me that it was their fault. Had they taken care of me the right way, this could have never happened. That's what I believed. I befriended the husbands and boyfriends to gain their trust and ensure them that nothing was happening between myself and their significant others. All the while premeditating a pounce on their wives, girlfriends, and even their friends. I believed the truth about the lie that it would be okay and I would not get caught. That's how I react to dishonesty. I'm not going to go through every one of these. I just want to give a couple examples. Thank you, Ashley. But I'm telling you that we're not right about all the people and all the dirtiness and all this. I want to look at my conduct. Where was I dishonest? Where was I selfish? Inconsiderate. I'm a very cocky individual whenever it comes to this. I like to say things that is just hurting to people. And sometimes it'll shame them into giving me what I want. Other times it'll run them away. It doesn't really matter. Now we're going to look at whom did I hurt. Now here's not a whole list of names either. This is the ripple effect. Whom did I hurt? Wives. Husbands. Mothers. Fathers. Some of them had daughters of college age. They were paying for their way through school. I picked them up on a lie, had a fling with them. They quit school. We ended up together, and then I left them. Man, that's pretty bad conduct, pretty bad conduct. I don't need to go into the names of all them people. What if they had children? I talked them into leaving those kids somewhere so that we could go have a good time together. Then I hurt the child. This list goes on and on and on. I don't need a bunch of names here. Did we unjustly arouse jealousy? suspicion or bitterness a lot of people say yes 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 no i want to look at how jealousy there would be times that i'd be at a, at a meeting and uh my wife uh, i was aggravated with her that night or whatever i would put my arm around another woman and begin to whisper in her ear something about the program to that woman it sounded very innocent to my wife was over there burning up with jealousy she just was did i unjustifiably arouse absolutely i did suspicion Keep that phone locked up. Change that number often. Never look at my phone for any reason. It's on buzz all the time. Never on ring. Anybody relate to that? Lock that computer down. I don't want anybody to see what's going on. Did I create suspicion? Absolutely. What about bitterness? Oh, yeah. Over and over and over and over. Look at this one. Where were we at fault? Where was I at fault? And then that's a, that's a story all by itself. This is all I'm writing about. What should I have done instead? I should have stayed away. I should have never got to that. I should have went to God over and over and over. What should I have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Not a bunch of names, not a bunch of objects, not a bunch of all this stuff that I hear about. My books that I hear says nothing about that. Nothing. I want to look at my conduct. Nothing more. Very freeing. Very freeing. For the first time, I got to see self and the way it manifests itself through me in this area of life it wasn't a pretty picture at all but you know what that's okay 
it was a lesson, not a life sentence. I hurt a lot of people. I've got to make amends to a lot of people. Things are much, much better. I have more than three years now in that area of life of recovery and sobriety, and I seek it every day, every day, every day. I'm truly grateful to be here tonight. Next week, we'll finish up this part of the conduct. We'll be looking at the fifth step from there on. But, man, I am so grateful for you folks coming out each and every week to be a part of this. And Dennis Ashley, thank you again so much for your service. Ashley, thank you for all you did tonight with the templates and all that. Truly grateful. Glad to be here. This concludes David's share on tonight's chapter, but we encourage you to keep listening as he answers questions from the audience and shares additional experience, strength, and hope. And we had a message that was in the chat that I'd like to start off with. So someone said that this is their first time at an essay meeting. I figured you might want to comment on that, uh, David, but had a great question that um, the fact is that the person against whom uh, you had the resentment, talking about your coworker, had power to influence your job. This was something that was not in your control at all. So how can you say that it was self's fault? Example, if we do something good and our boss does not appreciate us, don't we have a right to be resentful towards that person? Well, I absolutely have the right to do it. I also have the right to drink. I have the right to drug and I have the right to act out. But it has been my experience by doing that 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 leads to a whole lot of difficulty and misery for a whole lot of people. So my book says resentment is the number one offender. What that man did to me, yeah, I absolutely, that he had power over my life at that time in that way. But I come to realize there was one who had all power and it wasn't that man. And I connected with that one. And whenever I did that and I took a look at my faults, where was I to blame? That man could do the very same thing to me today. And I promise you that wouldn't affect me at all in the way that it did back then. Why? Because I've had a spiritual awakening. I have had a different outlook on life. They don't have that power over me anymore at all. And just to clarify, this is a meeting for all editions. It's not an SA meeting. It's not an AA meeting. It's not a AAA meeting. This is a big book study for all addictions. I appreciate your question. Um, I've just got a, a, a question. Uh, going down through the columns here, under effects, um, this is something which has puzzled me a little. Um, I can see, obviously, we have self-esteem in brackets, fear, uh, and we have um, security in brackets, fear, only once at the very bottom. And uh, I'm, I'm just wondering why security hasn't got brackets fear after it on two of the two other occasions above it it's it might seem petty but uh, i got into quite a discussion with somebody once about this is there any way you can illuminate on that at all or is is this a misprint i'm not sure well i appreciate that question for sure anytime that i look at one of these areas of self that have been affected if it caused fear I need to bracket that out along the side. Now, apparently, with the example he gave, only in this one particular case did it bring fear into whenever he felt like security was affected. If you look at column two there, misunderstands, nags like Brown, wants the house put in her name. That is his security. So that obviously brought fear because if you look at the very first example, under the cause, 
It says, attention to my wife, told wife of my mistress. Now down here, she's wanting the house put in her name. Why would mm -hmm. she want to put in her name? Because gotcha. it's probably going to be a divorce. Gotcha. It's getting more and more. Yeah. Yep. That would definitely bring fear. So. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. First time joining you guys' group, I thoroughly enjoy it, man. I'm kind of struggling on that, man. He, he, he talked about his, his sponsor talking about fear. I'm kind of stuck right there, man. How you rid yourself of this thing, man? Or better yet, yield before God that he can rid you of it uh, and get, you know, some positive vibes working for you as opposed to attracting the thing you fear the most. Yes, sir. I appreciate you being here tonight for your first time. Welcome, man. Well, if you got a book with you, man, if you would flip back over to page 63 for just a second. Whenever we take a look at the self, which is some call it the ego, some call it the self, it doesn't matter what you term it. It's what it is. It dominates our thoughts. Top there, it says we sincerely took such a position. If you drop almost to the bottom of that paragraph, it says well, we're going to, when we take this third step, we're going to become conscious of his presence. We're going to begin to lose our fear. It doesn't say we're going to lose our fear. It says we're going to begin to lose our fear. And as we move through the rest of this process, as we've been talking about tonight, we're going to face and identify those fears. We're going to turn to this power and we're going to let those fears be taken from us. We ain't going to have to go do nothing to do it. Remember what the prayer said. If you had your book with us here tonight, we were back on page 68 there and down toward the bottom of it where there was a prayer. So we never apologize to God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him. To remove our fear right there is how we do what you just asked. And I don't know if you're seeing that, but look at the very last paragraph up about two or three sentences before that. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be at once we commenced our real fear. That's how we do it. If you've not been through the process with a sponsor, brother, I encourage you, I encourage you, I encourage you, man, to, to give us somebody who can take you through this work. It changed your life for sure. Glad you're here, man. Um, I had a question about the base, the 12 basic fears. Would you, David, consider guilt a fear or would I have to dig in deeper and define why I feel the guilt? I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Uh, would you say guilt would be considered a fear? I would think so. If you look at one of the 12 basic is being hurt emotionally or physically there. That definitely rolls along. That's what I would connect guilt to, being hurt okay. emotionally. Okay, thank you. Yes, ma'am.